This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Today, I'm talking about a new album I'm very excited about. Vince Guaraldi's soundtrack for A Charlie Brown Christmas has become an indelible part of many people's Christmas. It introduced generations to ennui before they had the language for it. And it's been one of the most talked about albums on this podcast. Stephen Draws to Flaming Lips talked about how he taught himself to reharmonize songs by listening to Vince Guaraldi's versions of O Tannenbaum and What Child Is This? And Kristen Chenoweth talked about how the album introduced her to jazz. I'll link to both of those episodes in the show notes. This holiday season, Kraft has released a new super deluxe version of the soundtrack that includes the soundtrack with its original 1965 mix, a new stereo mix, and a good chunk of the recording sessions for the album. Today, I'm talking to Vince Guaraldi scholar Derek Bang about the recording sessions and what there is to find in them. They're not complete. The sessions for some songs are missing entirely, and Bang talks about that. But the digital version and CD versions include everything that's available now. The two-record vinyl version features the album you know on one record, and the highlights from the session on the other. The digital and vinyl versions are out now for purchase and for streaming, and the four-disc CD version, which also includes a Blu-ray disc with the actual special, will be out December 2nd. By now, you know the soundtrack, so for today's show, I'm going to stick to previously unreleased takes from the new release. Here's a version of Linus and Lucy. We'll be back on the other side with Derek Bang on 12 Songs. What was your first reaction listening to the sessions for the soundtrack to A Charlie Brown Christmas? Well, you got to understand that I'm deeply, deeply into this music. So I suspect my first reaction is not necessarily going to be typical of the average mainstream consumer's reaction, who may wonder why there are so many versions of the same silly song on so many of these CDs. I was enthralled. Um, there are a lot of cases where I don't like knowing how the sausage is ground, so to speak, but I really enjoy that kind of backstory when we're talking about music and particularly jazz. And being, well, as I say in my liner notes, it frequently feels like the listener is sitting in the engineer's office watching these sessions unfold. And I was just enthralled by, particularly by seeing and hearing how um, Guaraldi had to work up the way he was going to approach the various songs. Some of them sound, uh, Christmas time is here, at least with the sessions that we get on these discs, sounds pretty much the way it ultimately became familiar. But skating and Christmas is coming, those two in particular, they started out nothing like 
their eventual finished selves and being able to eavesdrop on that creative process, almost like being inside Giraldi's head, really, or inside his fingers, perhaps. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I was and I remain fascinated. Um, to me, it's just incredible. It's like being able to go to a club and see him and his trio perform, say, five nights in a row, where you know they're not going to play the same song the same way, two times running. Um, so, um, I guess that answers the question. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you mentioned one of the things, one of the tracks that particularly struck me was, um, Christmas is coming because I think I count like 14, 14 tracks and, you know, part of the beauty for me of the Giraldi soundtrack is that he made everything sound effortless um and that in this case it's very clear when you hear the early early uh versions there were parts of it that were genuinely difficult for them to work out the timing and work out the feel oh definitely <laughs> excuse me um i was particularly amused by the by the uh session where he can't get the initial cascade run in skating down correctly. He keeps fluffing it like, what, three, four, five times in a row? And finally complains, you do it so often, your hands get tired. That's right. <laughs> and, then, and then he sits there and does some quick little keyboard exercise stuff. And then, of course, the next take is flawless. Right. I, I mean, that's magic. You know, you know, I, I I live in New Orleans and I have written written about music here for more than twenty years and you know, spend a lot of time with jazz musicians and part of what's so fascinating is how there will be moments where just nothing comes together and then something changes that's imperceptible. Someone does something different and it just opens up a path. And uh and then and you see them again, and you realize the next time they try this, somebody's going to do something that will open up a different path. And that there is no, no definitive version. There's just the version that they settle on because it, it does whatever they were looking for. Um, but you realize if I, get, if I laid out you know, eight tracks in front of you and said, pick one, there's a very good chance, like even in these tracks, you would not necessarily pick out the same tracks that Giraldi picked um, as the finals. Um, just oh, because you would hear there's something else that would catch you about this one or something would catch you about that one. Yeah, of course. Although the irony here is that the 1965 album has become so iconic that there are a lot of people out in the world who don't want to hear any version other than the songs as they first heard them on that 1965 album. 
Fantasy learned that to their great surprise with the 2006 remix and remaster, where they attempted to correct some of the mistakes that had been present on the 1965 album, and they caught hell for it. People complained. Um, You know, we don't want to hear it different. We want to hear it the way it was. And yet, of course, um, jazz fans would never say that. Yeah. What is funny, I, uh, a few years ago, I interviewed a band called The Ornaments from oh, Nashville. Oh, I know them. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I saw that. I saw that listed in your uh, list of shows. <laughs> yeah. Jen, Jen Gunderson. Yes. Yes. And when we were talking about it, I remember when I interviewed them, Marty Lyons was talking about, and I'm blanking which song it is, but he's very aware that everybody's listening for his for a final hit on the symbol <laughs> yeah. to finish out one of the songs. And I can't remember which one it is at the moment, but it's so signature and like people know it the material so well that it's not done till you get that like that light symbol touch to right. finish it's the piece. Line, it's the end of Linus and Lucy, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's right. That's right. As as you you know, after he climbs up the scale and and uh, repeats the little filigrees a couple of times, and then they they start to fade out, and just just before that last note disappears completely, you get that little cymbal pop. Yeah, he taps the bell of the cymbal. Yep. And yep. So yeah, but he, but say Martin, yeah, he he was talking about having had like the one time he didn't do it, people jumped him. I'm like, where was that? Where was this? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and you know, how do you how do you satisfy both extremes? I think what fantasy, well, what craft recordings now uh, is doing this year is more clever because the package includes what you remember from the 1965 album, and then all of this other stuff is uh, well. In my mind, of course, it's the main attraction, but. For a lot of people, it's probably the cherry on top, as long as they still have a disc that sounds the way they remember hearing it back in 1965. Do you know how many times Fantasy has repackaged this record? Oh, boy. Um, I'd have to think about it. Um, The first CD came out in 87, and it was quickly followed by another one in 88, and then there was a remaster in 99 and the 2006 that I mentioned a moment ago. And there was another one in 2012. <clears throat> and it gets hard after that because it started being included with other stuff and I mean, do we count all of the vinyl variants that have been coming out since 2015? Yeah. About half a dozen a year? Yeah. Um, I mean, we're probably talking close to 100. Yeah. For, I was trying to, one of the reasons I asked, I for some reason had the number 42 in my head, but I can't refine where I found that number. So oh, that's the, that's the secret to life, the universe, yes, and everything. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. The um, anyway, but it, it's been you know it's fascinating that I mean clearly the 
one of the things that speaks at the simplest level to the strength of this music is that fantasy re-puts it out every year in some form. And, yep. and, and clearly, I mean, whether it's a, whether it's a vinyl version, whether it's a color vinyl version, whether it's a remaster, whether it's a whatever, I mean, and I believe if memory serves, there's another, like, there's a one, a one or two vinyl versions that are coming out this year as well. In addition to this, uh, the, the, the sessions. So, you know, it, it's clear there remains an audience that's ready. Well, for it's more. not, it's, it's not merely that an audience remains. Um, it's growing. Yeah. I, I would have to say that the music has become more popular today than it was say 25, 30 years ago, which seems odd and certainly more popular than it was during Geraldi's lifetime, which is the very definition of irony. <laughs> um, when you consider that only, let's see, where are we? Only two years ago, the album finally hit Billboard's top 10 album list. And not the Christmas list, but the, you know, the, the top 200, right. I guess, is yes. what they call it. And it reached number 10. And last year, it reached number six. Right. I mean, it is charting in a way that it never charted before. Right. I I can't wait to see what happens this year. How did you come to this project? Oh, golly. Um, I, I think finally, uh, after quite some time, my reputation preceded me. Um, I uh, started following Giraldi's career pretty actively in the mid-1990s, uh, right around the time websites and the internet were becoming more of a thing. And... Uh, my wife and I belong to the Peanuts Collectors Club, which has been around since the early 1980s. And I was asked to set up their first website because I knew a little bit about such things, very little as it turned out. <laughs> um, and one of the things I wanted to include uh, in terms of content was some sort of essay about Vince Guaraldi. I was astonished to discover that nothing really had been written about him uh, with the exception of one excellent article in Keyboard Magazine back in 1981, if I have the date correct. Um, he's not really mentioned in any of the jazz overview books uh, that I was able to locate. Uh, we live in a university town, so I have access to a very good library. 
And uh, anyway, so I wrote a piece, and a couple of years later, um, no, it wasn't even a couple of years. Within a year, it was discovered by George Winston because I had the only article online about Vince Guaraldi. And George and I began a correspondence. Now we're very good friends. Um, and uh, flash forward not quite a decade, um, I kept waiting for somebody to write a book a biography of Giraldi, and nobody did, and nobody did, and nobody did. And by about um, 2007, 2008, I realized that the window was closing in terms of a lot of his former sidemen getting very old. Um, so I did it. Uh, McFarland published it in 2012. And as a result of that, um, I was asked by Nick Phillips, who was working for Concord at the time, to write liner notes for the next Giraldi uh, compilation that they released. Um, and I did that uh, for the next, oh, I don't know, half dozen Giraldi projects that Concord um, released. And about a year and a half ago, um, no, that's not true. Uh, for the 2018, the first release of the, <clears throat> excuse me, soundtrack to Great Pumpkin. By this point, I was working with Kraft Recordings, <clears throat> and they wanted uh, a nice, lengthy set of new liner notes for that. And I guess that really brought me to their attention, and that and the fact that I turned things in on time. <laughs> um, they uh, They always... It's become something of a joke. They always give me a word count of, let's say, hypothetically 5,000, and I'll turn in 10,000. Um, writing too little has never been one of my <laughs> failings. Uh, and they're usually pretty good about uh, accepting what, you know, what I turn in at whatever length. Anyway, um, last uh, actually, this, this big project has been in the works for a couple of years now. It was originally scheduled to come out last year. Um, and, you know, for a variety of reasons, which I suspect had to do with supply chain issues, final perhaps, uh, it was delayed. And um, ultimately, now we're back to back to back because we had the, the new and improved Great Pumpkin soundtrack, which just came out, which I wrote liner notes for, and this big Christmas project, which... I basically wrote a book for yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a beautiful uh, golly 56 page uh, item with lots of illustrations and storyboard stuff and all kinds of good things and then we're getting two new versions of jazz impressions of Black Orpheus in the next couple of months one of which I'm also involved with and it's the only thing that's been interesting challenging I should say is in some cases I am writing about the same album that I've already written about. Sure. And I find, my, I find myself in the position of Charles Schultz, who famously said once that a cartoonist is somebody who has to draw the same thing differently every day. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh. and here I am having to write the same thing differently. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's okay because Garaldi's life was so rich and the back story to 
the creation of these various animated shows and the albums are so rich with detail that it was not hard at all to simply go back and find a different way of approaching the same story. Right. So, you know, that's a long answer to your question. I apologize. No, not at all. So one thing you might be able to position to help me with then is I've always sort of struggled to get a feeling for Giraldi's, uh, Giraldi's career and particularly his popularity because, you know, he's, because as you observed, he's someone who for the most part was not necessarily somebody who was kind of written about and focused on in sort of canonical jazz writing. And, and so to a great degree, I was aware of him. I mean, as a San Francisco, uh, you know, piano, uh, you know, pianist and band leader. And I'm, and I could never tell if like he was a guy who was very much a sort of uh, San Francisco and West coast sort of attraction, or if he had a larger national career than we were, than we're generally made aware of. Not during his lifetime. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, It has been said by a variety of people that Vince Guaraldi is the most famous jazz pianist whose name you don't know. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, He didn't like to tour, so he didn't do much of it, particularly after he got the Peanuts gig, which gave him enough of an income that he didn't need to tour. Well, if you don't tour outside of the state of California, which he basically didn't do after 1966, um, I think the last the last reasonably extensive tour he took was with a, a group fronted by Benny Goodman. And I want to say, I'm going to guess here, I think that was 66 or 67. And that was kind of it. And if you don't tour, they're not going to know who you are in New York and Florida and Kansas. Um, Secondly, he was without a label after 1969, early 1970. Um, He had uh, parted from fantasy under acrimonious terms, um, although he got the better of the legal settlement involved with that. He briefly flirted with trying to float his own label, uh, D&D, in 1967 and that was an utter disaster for a variety of reasons that weren't entirely his fault um and then he was signed by warners and that was a really big deal and very exciting and the first album that he brought out with warners oh good grief did very well and everybody was happy but then garaldi got kind of full of himself and the next album eclectic was a disaster and Warners insisted on bringing in, I think it was Shorty Rogers, to produce the third one, Almaville, which, you know, it's kind of like at that point, the label had given up on him anyway. Right. Which is a shame because I think that last album is one of his best. And so for the last seven years of his career, he was without a label and he wasn't releasing albums. And that's another way people are not going to notice you. Um, so he doesn't tour and he's not releasing albums for seven years. So, you know, why would he be known? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's fascinating to think about this idea, this figure who has become the guy who introduces generation after generation of children. He is the first jazz music that most kids hear. things I like particularly about uh, the uh, about the sessions is that there are a few places where he and the band stretch out and you get six and seven minute takes where oh, yeah. you have room for 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 playing that you just don't otherwise hear and because for me at least because the album was thought of as a soundtrack and so many pieces, are in like two and three minute chunks that it swings and that you are working with a classic, uh, you know, piano trio. And at the same time, you don't get the kind of moments of individual expression that we so often associate with jazz. That's true. And, And so I understand anybody who thinks this isn't jazz because you don't have the moment where you feel like you just know Vince as a soloist or where you know the bass player and you can hear the bass player go. It's like, man, you know, that you hear a whole lot of really smart, really subtle manipulation of the melody and manipulation of the harmony. But, you know, this this gives you moments where he stretches out in a way that the soundtrack doesn't. Absolutely. And um, as, I, as I think I mentioned in response to the, the question that, you, that was put to me, um, it was really, um, it was almost a shock the first time I heard some of Jerry Grinelli's drum solos in places that I was not <laughs> expecting them. Yeah. Um, which, you know, and, and uh, analytically, you can listen to that, and although you love it as a take, you think, okay, I remember the scene in the special where this particular music was used, and obviously an extended drum solo was not appropriate. Right. But just as obviously, Jerry was bound and determined to have a good time at that particular <laughs> moment. Do you remember about how old you were? Or when it was that you first saw Charlie Brown Christmas? Oh, are you kidding? That's like asking somebody if they remember the day Kennedy was assassinated <laughs> or John Lennon was shot. Right. Yes, I was 10 years old. Um, it was uh, December 9th, 1965. I was dressed in pajamas um, and doing that that image that uh, we have of kids watching television in the 1950s and early 60s where they're sitting on the carpet directly in front of the picture tube. Um, Yeah, I remember it vividly. I remember the show uh, being, you know, uh, absolutely uh, enchanted by the, the show itself because I, even at 10, I was a big Peanuts fan. Um, I learned to read in part, um, by reading 
the little faucet crest paperback book collections of Peanuts cartoons, you know, years earlier. And I remember loving the music. But of course, the credits rushed by so quickly that I had absolutely no idea right. who had done the music. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, I remember it vividly. It's interesting. I mean, I'm that we're probably pretty similar in age. And and I remember, remember you know, I, I don't know if I saw it in 65 or 66. I know I saw it, in, you know, as a kid. And, and I remember, and, and I was, and I, and I remember being, being excited by it because I was a Peanuts fan. And again, because I also was like, that's what I, I, I read, I, I read comic strips. And at the same time, I was fascinated by the show, but it took me a long time to, to love the show um, because it's so melancholy. And it is. that, and that a lot of, a lot of the a lot of the emotional bleakness that on a, in a, in a on a daily strip doesn't land as hard landed really hard when you had the art style of the of the uh, cartoon and you had um, Garaldi's soundtrack to accompany it and so it took me a few years to to love it. Um, I wouldn't miss it. It was every year I was going to watch it. There was not, wasn't a question and there was a lot I liked about it, but I found, you know, one of the, one of the things I think is amazing about that is how the soundtrack introduces a gener a new generation each year to jazz and mm -hmm. the cartoon itself teaches on we before anybody and uh, depression before, before we had the language for it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is very true. Um, there, it's, it's, it's actually not the meanest, uh, Peanuts animated special that was done in terms of the abuse that Charlie Brown suffers, but it's close. What is the meanest? Oh, I think, um, you're in love. Charlie Brown is probably the worst because that's the one where he really suffers not being able to get in touch with a little red haired girl. Right. I had to say this one. Yeah, I have to. I have to, I have to rewatch that one because I don't remember it. But having having everybody mad at him as a kid yeah. that totally registered. That was hard. Yep. Yeah, I you know I was. Uh, what's the best way to say this? I did not have a surfet of friends <laughs> as a youngster, <laughs> so so uh, I identified with Charlie Brown to a degree. Right, um, but um, it would be unfair to say that I was picked on to the degree that he is. Yes. things weren't that things weren't that bad. There are two sessions. The sessions include two tracks that are not on soundtrack albums: the uh, the four versions of Jingle Bells, and then his little quick sort of noodling on uh, on Lil Anthony and the Imperials going out of my head. Yeah. What can you tell me about those tracks? Um, well, I can, with respect to the various takes on Jingle Bells, you know how they're used in the show. And one of the funny things is that over time, over time, over time, since I've established a web presence and you know, people know that I know Geraldi. Every time Fantasy Conquered Craft did come out with a new version 
for about the last two decades, I would always hear from one or two people the opportunity to include those versions of Jingle Bells and didn't take it. Ha, 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 ha. And uh, so now they finally have. Uh, I think it's amusing that Garaldi fluffs one of the ones, doesn't get it right the first time. That simple little thing, you know, makes all of um, pretend to play the piano feel a whole lot better. <laughs> if, if if somebody with that talent doesn't necessarily get something like that the first time. As for the extraneous um, uh, presence of, you know, going out of my head, well, um, he, they were performing it. His trio was performing that song a lot uh, during club, club dates. Um, so I'm sure they were all very familiar with it. And I have no doubt it was just, you know, they launch into it suddenly because they wanted to. And now it's preserved forever. And once again, that amplifies the sense of eavesdropping on an actual studio recording session because things are going to be that spontaneous. ones that surprised me was I think the versions of uh, the Christmas song okay it feels like he's trying to find a home for that song like as I hear those versions it's, it's the one one series of tracks where it feels like he doesn't have a clear vision on where he wants to go with it you know it's interesting you should say that um his arrangement, his finished arrangement, I should say, of O Tannenbaum is so iconic in my mind. This is another one of those moments where, you know, you were talking about that little um, touch of symbol that concludes Linus and Lucy and it had better be there. Yeah. Um, for a lot of people, if they're going to hear uh, a performance by, say, a group such as the Ornaments, they want to hear that solo piano introduction that Garaldi perfected for O. Tannenbaum, right? Um, that, his version of that song, I mean, that is the version of the song as far as I'm concerned. All the others pale. His rendition of the Christmas song does not have the iconic, it doesn't have that iconic touch to it. Uh, it feels more ordinary, not yeah. special. Yeah. And, and um, I don't know why. Um, you know, he, he plays around with it during that studio session. The, you know, there are distinct versions. And that, that is one case where I think I, and you're going to ask me which one, and I'm going to say I don't know, so just don't ask me. Sure. Um, I did think that one of the other takes 
aside, you know, different from the one that appeared on the album would have been a better choice. Huh. But you know, I mean, probably, I, I, yeah, I, I'd have to play them all again. Um, but probably still not iconic. Uh, yeah. He didn't, he made his version of O Tannenbaum his. He did not do that with the Christmas song. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it was interesting. I realized when I was listening to it that as he ran through multiple versions, I couldn't remember the original, the, the the final version well enough to be able to tell how close he was getting to, you know, to, to, to the spot that he was going to lock in. And that was, that was, the that's one. interesting. That's interesting. Okay. What was the one that in your mind went through the biggest transformation from first track to, you know, to final? Oh, definitely. Christmas is coming. Um, you know the the early takes on that he's nowhere near it yeah um it's 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 not even the same style um i i think it took him a while to make up his mind over the fact that he wanted that to be a jazz rock piece as opposed to just a jazz piece um the early efforts lacked the intensity uh he he clearly has no idea how to conclude it yes uh right i mean <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. His early attempts at endings are all over the map. Um, plus, um, the trio as a whole, they don't really have anything close to a handle on what they're going to do during the middle of it. Yes. Because it's not, I mean, let's face it, it's not that intricate a melody. Right. And they, you know, they, they and it, it never really gets any more complex in that sense. But it took them a long time to figure out what to do with it. Right. You know, what I thought was interesting was, and I found it very humanizing, was to realize, listening to the, you know, that rhythmically it was trickier than it sounded. Yes. To try to figure out that, da, 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 you know, that that section just clearly beat the hell out of them, trying to figure out how to, for him to find the right feel for it, for him to find the right timing for it, and then for the band to be able to time with him on it. That, ju- that passage kicks their ass for like five or six takes. And, you know, we we don't know if there were other earlier studio sessions. There may have been. Two sessions for sure have yet to be found. And those are the other two with the St. Paul uh, Young People's Chorus, because they did one song per night over the course of three different sessions. Huh. And all we've got is Christmas Time is Here. Oh, interesting. We don't have... We don't have Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which was done on a different night. And we don't have their um, tum diddly um diddly um dum dum 
on my little drum, which was done on the third session. So there's theoretically, there's perhaps more to be found. <laughs> the super deluxe version for next year. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, Glenn and Sean and Jason Mendelson beat themselves up looking through everything that they've got. So, you know, that if it had been there, they'd have found it somewhere. I think it's more likely, well, I don't know. Maybe they are lost forever. I'd hate to think so. Well, that'd, be, that'd be a shame. But uh, anyway, uh, there's, since we have these, uh, the sessions that we do have, I am intrigued by the notion that there may have been more that preceded them. It is possible. Certainly. So. Uh, for, for one thing, uh, four different sets of sidemen over time have claimed to have been involved in the making of that album. Now, you, you want to talk about that? I think this is a fun story. Um, well, boy, let, I wonder if I can name them all. Um, of course, we had uh, Monty Budwig and Colin Bailey, who were pretty sure um, scored the album. Um, whereas uh, Fred Marshall and Jerry Grinelli almost certainly scored the bulk of the show. But we also have, oh, I'm blanking, Alex, I'm sorry. Um, Puzzy Firth and I'd have to look it up. I mean, do you want me to? No, no, no. no more, I was more interested in the fact that Vimry, that you had Vimery serves. You basically had players coming out of the woodwork all claiming to have been part of the, uh, part of the, of the trio. For these well, sessions. right. I mean, you know, success has many fathers. Yeah. Failure is an orphan, right? right? Um, and I do have in my Garaldi timeline, I do have a date for a studio session involving one of those other two um, duos who insist that they were recording music for a Charlie Brown Christmas on that day, huh. in a, you know, during a fantasy recording session. So what happened to that? Right. Interesting. So, but the bottom line is, so essentially now, and I guess he didn't leave, that Garaldi didn't leave good records. So, oh, we, don't, he was so we don't know definitively who no. plays be, beyond him? We don't know definitively who plays on any of these tracks. Um, that's well, you're right. Definitively, you're absolutely correct. Um, Jerry Grinelli knows what he sounded like back then, and he was pretty secure in his insistence that uh, it's him and Fred right. uh, in the show. Um, just as insistent as Colin Bailey was that it was him and Monty uh, on the album. Right. But you know, and that all blew up with the 1999 reissue, CD reissue, when um, Fantasy credited only uh, Colin Bailey and Monty Budwig because nobody had been credited on the 1965 LP. Right. Not even, you know, nobody at all except for Garaldi himself. Um he kept lousy records. Fantasy kept lousy records. Um, anyway, when that 1999 CD came out, Fred Marshall's daughter 
bought one and was very angry because her father wasn't mentioned. Huh. And she and so Fred kind of pursued this. He tried to do it quietly, but the story actually broke publicly, and it was written up quite extensively in an article that was published at the time. And, of course, what makes this more complicated is that shortly after Garaldi died, when Fantasy issued an LP, um, the best of Vince Garaldi, Vince Garaldi's greatest hits, I don't remember what it was, the exact title, that record, that album credited Fred Marshall and ah, 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 ah. Jerry Grinelli for the Charlie Brown Christmas tracks. Right. Ah, right? Ah, yeah. So, so which is right? Ah. <laughs> it's a mess. Yeah. It's a mess. And, of course, now they're, golly, now they're all gone. Yeah. Um, last, last year was really tough. We lost a lot of them last year. We should finish up. Do you have a favorite? A favorite what? A favorite song from from the soundtrack that we haven't, especially one that we haven't talked about yet that we we should pay a little attention to. I love skating. Why? I absolutely uh, because it sounds like what it is. Yeah. It that that cascade is the most perfect evocation. Is that a word of? Gently drifting snowflakes. Yeah. And it's a waltz, which makes it stand out right. from the others. Um, jazz waltzes are still somewhat unusual and certainly was unusual in 1965. And it's just so melodically pure, I guess, Um if I could only listen to one track from the album in a given year, that would be the one that I would beat to death. <laughs> I, 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 I never get tired of that lyrical keyboard cascade. Um, and it's, it's hard to do. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of other people in a lot of other combos across the country. You know, the one thing that uh, was nice about the COVID year was that a lot of these regional bands did their annual session online and they made them available, you know, as streams. So, you know, I was able to hear it a lot. It takes a very talented penis to get that cascade right. Thanks to Derek for the time and the talk. You can find him and his writing on film online at DerekBangBlogspot.com, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. The super deluxe version of the soundtrack is streaming now, and you can buy the digital version and the two-record vinyl version now as well. The CD and Blu-ray release will be out on December 2nd. For fans of A Charlie Brown Christmas, 
this might be the only way to see the actual cartoon. Apple acquired it a few years ago, and they show it around the holiday on Apple+. Plus. Last year, PBS also showed it once, but that's not scheduled to happen this year. So the short answer is, if you don't have it through some kind of stored media, and you don't have Apple+, Plus, you will probably not see A Charlie Brown Christmas this year. If you want more on this album and Garaldi's influence, check out the George Winston interview because he talks about his relationship with Garaldi as well and a piece I wrote for the New Orleans Advocate last year. I'll put links to both of those up in the show notes. Finally, we'll wrap up with one of the oddities from the sessions. In the interview, Derek and I talked about the snippet of Going Out of My Head that Vince Garaldi and his band play at one point. We'll finish with that. Talk to you next week.